Let me just say it's a delight to be back with you. Uh, we had a wonderful uh, break for my wife and myself and uh, being able to go and visit my father's my father-in-law, uh, who is 93, and we were able to spend time with him, try to offer what limited help we can to him as he has greater and greater challenges at his age. And also, we uh, got to spend some time with some former members here and, and just some time to rest. I tell you, it's important to find some time to withdraw. I'm, I'm like Jesus. I'd like to be up in the mountains or off somewhere uh, for an extended period of time. It really helps uh, to find restore, restoration for my soul. So we thank you for those who have filled the pulpit for me and who have uh, carried on in my absence. I'd like to open in prayer and then we'll begin uh, looking at Psalm 8 this morning. Lord, we've just affirmed that you are good. The fact that we are here today is a testimony of your goodness. The fact that we want to be here today is a testimony of your grace. And so, Father, uh, we come to you as our Creator, very much desiring your glory to be appreciated by not just those of us gathered in this room, but, Lord, all the whole world to appreciate you, your power, your creative genius. And we come, Lord, with heavy hearts on one level. We also come with hearts of great anticipation of what you will do. And so we ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts today through your word. We pray that you would help us to have renewed thinking, and therefore hearts that are impacted by that renewed thinking, and that we would live out of our hearts, Lord, in a way that would begin to help bring about your kingdom on this earth. And so toward that end, we pray that your word, which is alive and active, may it be that in our lives today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. An avalanche begins when a small amount of maybe rocks or soil or snow on the side of a mountain breaks away and begins to make its way down the slope. I grew up in West Virginia. There were many roads where there would be an avalanche of all sorts of rocks and debris that come down the road. Uh, Perhaps you've been in a place where you've seen a snow avalanche. I'm sure that initially, when it first starts to happen, it doesn't seem all that dangerous. It doesn't seem all that threatening, really. A couple of rocks moving, a little bit of snow moving. But within a short amount of time, the more and more material becomes dislodged, and soon enough, it can turn into a raging torrent, whether it be snow or boulders or gravel or ice. What began as a small slide increases in momentum, increases in power and force. It ends up burying anything in its way, destroying everything in its path as it moves down the mountainside. In January of 1973, our land here in the United States, saw the beginning of a great avalanche. The Supreme Court decided in Roe v. Wade to set in motion a destructive moral avalanche which continues to threaten the value and worth of human life. By ruling that the killing of unborn babies was legally protected by a supposed right of privacy, made the most vulnerable and defenseless humans 
lose that protection and have made them more vulnerable. The toll in the last, the toll in, those, in lost human lives as caused by this avalanche is difficult to fathom. I've tried to total it up, and since the Supreme Court decision over 41 years ago, experts estimate that 57 million babies have been aborted in the United States. To, to try to get that in perspective, that is the number of the population today of the states combined in New England. Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. Combine all those states and every person right now who's alive, imagine them being dead. Add to that the population of the state of Pennsylvania, the state of New Jersey, the state of New York, and the state of Delaware. All of those states, the current population combined is the kind of toll of death we've seen in 41 years. All of us are vulnerable to a tendency to be overwhelmed by that sheer number. We tend to be desensitized to the horror of what is happening in our lifetime. And so it is incumbent that we as Christians affirm our biblical understanding of the sanctity of human life. And I know for some of you, you're regretting that here we go again. It's that time in January we're going to hear another sermon on this. But I feel it's important because now is the time that we as the people of God need to seek God as to what response he would have us make to this widespread loss of human life. And so I want to devote my time this morning to reviewing the biblical understanding of the sanctity or dignity of human life. And I, again, would like to direct your attention to Psalm 8. We began the service with that psalm. I'd like to read it again. Psalm 8 page 653 in your pew Bible. There are many portions of Scripture we could have read. We could have read Psalm 139, Genesis chapter 1. There are many passages, but I'd, I'd like us to think about this text this morning where we read, David writing, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has displayed your splendor above the heavens, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you have taken thought of him and the son of man that you do care for him? Yet you have made man a little lower than God and do crown him with glory and majesty. You do make him to rule over the works of your hands. You do put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Since David's reflections on the value of these, on human life as he thinks about it in this text, was inspired by the Holy Spirit, what we have in this text is we're discovering God's point of view about human life. And the scriptures remind us of this fundamental truth that God is the ultimate reference point 
in order to understand the dignity and value and worth of human beings. And as we examine this passage, I want us to reflect upon God's answer to the question, what is man? What is mankind? So my first point this morning is the answer to that question, what is mankind or what is man? It reveals our worldview. How we answer that question says much about what you understand about the world and your whole understanding of what is significant in the world and your understanding of your part in that world. I start off this morning with an understanding of secularism, which attempts to explain the world and explains human existence apart from God. God is nowhere in the picture in secularism. And more and more, that is the prevailing viewpoint of people in our land. And the secular viewpoint assumes that there is a macro, naturalistic evolution, and that is a proven fact, according to most secularists. And mankind is thereby reduced to the level of a higher form of evolved life. And humans are merely then complex machines, biological machines, sophisticated networks of cells, sophisticated biological systems and electrical impulses. And since no creator exists, at least from the point of view of a secularist, every member of the human race is challenged to find ways to survive as the fittest. Add to this is the conviction that since there is no divine sovereign ruler of the universe, every person has a fundamental right to self-rule. Everyone has the right to determine what they think is right and what they think is wrong. And from a secular point of view, autonomy is the ultimate priority. I came across an example of this in some rather disturbing writing of a secularist who thinks similar to this and whose value uh, pertains to the value of certain forms of human life. And I've put that column of that statement in your notes there. It's written by Mary Elizabeth Williams and a Salon columnist, and this is what she, she wrote. My conviction is that the fetus is indeed life. But then listen to the next four chilling words. A life worth sacrificing. A fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her. Always. Always. Again, I would say, because there is no ultimate reference point, there is no absolute truth, people like Ms. Williams insist that not all humans are equal, despite the assurances of what our governing uh, founders included in what they declared to be, all men are created equal before God. And apparently, the silent and the weakest ones have no guarantee of the basic fundamental right to life. Now, I say this because in our secularistic society today, we have various voices that speak of their passionate concerns in ways that are alarming. For example, the Physicians Association of Planned Parenthood 
declares that pregnancy, in their minds, is a sexually transmitted disease. Pregnancy. And if you look more clearly at the uh, thinking of those who try to understand human life apart from any understanding of God, we are left with all sorts of disturbing views about different forms of life and how one can be given value and others can have no value at all based on the whim of what some person concludes in their own mind. I'd like to contrast that with Christianity just for a moment. Because the author of Psalm 8 here, David, I believe it's possible that he was reflecting on the many hours he spent out tending sheep. He's under the night sky. He doesn't have a lot of light pollution that we have here. Uh, in which he's looking up at the majesty of a night sky and he sees through the clear air stars of the heavens that no doubt it, to him seemed numberless. He saw such vast numbers of stars, it was incomprehensible. And in view of the expanse of the universe with all these billions and billions of stars stretched out in every direction, David obviously in reflecting upon it, begins to feel quite small. He doesn't even have all the understanding of astronomy that we have nowadays. But even then, he, he felt the sense of which, because of the vastness, he says, my life feels insignificant compared to all of this. I'm such a small little element in the bigger mass of existence in the universe. And the vastness of the universe then points him then back to the ultimate reference point in understanding the bigger picture, and that is he sees God in the center of everything. God is the ultimate biblical reference point. And the starry host of heaven, according to Romans 1, reveal to us, the more I look at creation and look at the vastness and awesomeness of it, I am pointing, it's pointing me to the one who is the all-powerful divine being. He does exist, he is deity, and he's greater than all of us. And the heavens are not filled with the evidence of a random universe, but of a complex universe that's been designed. It points us to an eternal, omnipotent creator. Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by his mouth all of their host was made. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. All of creation was made by a personal, intelligent, divine designer. And since God made everything, and since God made everyone, human life fits into this framework of meaning and significance because of a, a, this God. According to David, every human being, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant, in view of the vastness of God's creative work, Every human being is nonetheless, look at verse 4 and 5 of chapter 8, nonetheless they are crowned with a measure of glory and majesty. What is man that you do take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you, that is God, has made him a little lower than God and you do crown him with glory and majesty. According to the biblical worldview, Human beings were created by God and bestowed by God the, with the privilege of being God's representatives on this earth. You can find more about that in chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26, where we read that we who bear the image of our Creator, 
we are to have dominion over all other forms of life. That includes the land animals. It includes the fish, the birds, the creatures that are creeping on the ground. It is clear that man is not on the level of those other forms of life, that there is a sense of significance and dignity to human life that stands above all those other forms of life. It's very clear what the scriptural position is. And I don't have time to fully go into it, but Psalm 139 or Jeremiah chapter 1, you listen to what God says. God is intricately involved in the process of creating human life. That every life is be- that exists because God has created that life, imparted that life, and designed that life. You can't get escape that. You cannot get around that in the biblical worldview. That leads me then to my second point. What is man? Well, how we answer that question will govern our ethical practices. It will govern our ethical practices. I want to point out to you and again emphasize that our text of Scripture here in Psalm 8, particularly if you notice verse 5, that David writes that humans are not compared with being higher than animals, which is true, but he says we are described as being lower than Elohim, lower than God. God, I would understand, therefore, is the ultimate point of reference for gauging the dignity and value that every human being has. As we look up to God, we are able to understand our purpose. We're able to understand our meaning and it is all connected with Him. And every single person has God's image stamped upon him or her. And one of the re- very good prophets of our age, in a sense of his being able to speak clearly biblical truth to a secularistic culture, was Francis Schaeffer, who has recently uh, passed on to glory. But he wrote a very helpful book called No Little People, a collection of his sermons. And this is one of his quotes. I don't, think, I don't know if it's in your notes or not, but it says this. Since all human life has our origin in God, our attitude toward other people is to be one of equality. We are common creatures. We are of one blood and kind. As we look across all the world, we must be careful to have a sense of our equality on the basis of this common status. That is, we should see each other as valuable, as significant as those who bear the image of God and therefore are extremely valuable to Him. What difference it makes, depending on how you view something, but if you view a human life as having no value, it's amazing what you can justify in your mind. But again, I say, the value is, comes from the one who created us, that is God. Years ago, one of the sad transitions that we made in our life uh, with Joyce and myself. We were leaving seminary. We were making our way to our first church in Massachusetts, and we were doing a U-Haul trip. Uh, They have changed the logo on the back of the trucks now. It used to be Adventure in Moving. Uh, Believe me, there are some real adventures uh, when you're moving. I'm glad they've changed their little phrase. But anyway, one of our adventures was we stopped without planning the trip. We didn't have GPS back then. You know, we're just making our way. We didn't have cell phones. We were just traveling along. And uh, things got much darker. We didn't make as much progress we thought we'd make. So we're stopping near 
an urban center in Cleveland, Ohio. And we park uh, our truck, which is pulling a car, and my wife is driving in a separate car. Anyway, short story long, uh, long story short. And uh, during the night we stayed there, someone broke into our truck and broke into the car. And of, of the number of items taken, none of which were of great monetary value, but in there was a little satchel in the truck, actually. Uh, there was a satchel uh, which contained two completed cross stitches that my wife had painstakingly worked on for probably months. And there was a third one she was working on, which is a, bit of a three, three cross stitch set. They all go together. Not framed, just in, you know, jammed in there on this uh, uh, cross needlepoint needle uh, material. Now we knew, both of us knew, that whoever broke in there thought they had something significant in this satchel. Had some maps in there as well, I think. They probably looked at this thing once they took it out of the car and then dumped it in a dumpster somewhere, probably within yards of that location. Saying, this is stupid, what, what is, this is trash. In their eyes, it was, had no value at all. In the eyes of my wife, who painstakingly, stitch by stitch, took hours and hours and hours to create this thing, that was one of the most precious things we owned at the time. It makes all the difference in the world if you're the one who has been a part of that creative uh, process to bring something into existence. It has great value to that person. And I say to you, human beings created by God are of extreme value to him. Human life to God, all human life to God, is sacred. And I ask the question, who am I to determine your value? And who are you to determine my value? No one has the right to arbitrarily determine which life should be preserved and which life should be sacrificed. And in Psalm 8, David is connecting God's majesty and God's glory with the God-given glory he has bestowed upon his own creatures made in his image, human beings. And all humans are there to be treated with dignity and they're to be treated with respect. And all of our dealings with our fellow human beings are to be governed by an understanding that every human being bears the image of God, their creator. And therefore we are to respect the life of every person, particularly those who are weak and those who are infirmed and those who are the most vulnerable. From the oldest person to the smallest child in the womb, all human life is precious. People are not to be used and destroyed. Humans are to be respected and protected. Now, I'm not going to go into detail at this point, but I would, again, just want you to understand that in the last year, the world was given an opportunity to have sort of an open door of understanding to see what goes on in the world of abortionists. And if you don't understand what I'm talking about, you look up and Google Dr. Kermit Gosnell, and you read about a trial that took place in Philadelphia, and you will learn insights into what a secularistic mindset can justify and what was uh, going on in that particular clinic and you'll understand a little bit of what we're talking about when we use the term of concern as the Holocaust on human life. 
I would like to just expand off of that and add another comment here. That In my research, as I looked about what's going on in today's world, if you look at the roots and the history of the founding of Planned Parenthood, which is one of the largest providers of abortion in America, it's founded by Margaret Sanger. That's another name you ought to Google. Margaret Sanger, in the 1930s, is that she declared that there were her concern for the, the bringing into the world of undesirable Negroes is the whole reason that that whole movement got started. That's not, not my term. That's her terminology. That's her terminology. And even today, the majority of infants aborted in America are African American. It's an outrage. It's an outrage. And so we say with compassion, let me back up and just say this. If you're hearing me today and you're hearing me condemning you, if you have had an, a difficult time in your life and you're hearing me as someone who is sitting in judgment over you, please do not hear me that way. I want you to know here's, here's my ethical response to what I'm saying today. I'm saying to you, the ethical implications of a biblical worldview lead me right to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say that this because you must understand God did not send his son to provide eternal life to animals and to fish and to birds. That's offensive to some of you who have personalized animals that you live with. But I, I assure you, they will be affected by his redemptive work, but they are not given eternal life. Because the Bible says Jesus came to save his people from their sins. What does the gospel have to do with us? Well, the gospel declares that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God is compassionate. His love has been shown and demonstrates to you. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for your transgressions, for my transgressions. And the gospel affirms that not only the dignity of every person, which it says that, it also helps us understand that there is a corruption, a widespread corruption of every human heart. That's why we need the gospel. Jesus came to save sinners. Tim, uh, Paul says, of whom he says, I am the chief. I am the worst sinner. And that includes abortionists like Dr. Gosnell. It includes people, of course, the gospel includes the fact that Jesus came to save those who have had abortions. It is Jesus came to save men who have pressured their girlfriends or their wives to abort their babies. It, the gospel says that Jesus came to save racists who hate other people who are of a different ethnicity or a different skin color. It is the gospel that says Jesus came to save people who mock and make fun of those who have physical abnormalities. It is the gospel who comes to save wicked sinners like me who have put Jesus Christ on the cross and I am a murderer. I have hated people in my own heart. I've committed mental adultery in my heart. I am in no, no way qualified to say I stand above anyone here today I say to you I am in desperate need of a savior I hope you find yourself in the same shoes as I am please do not hear me saying that we are looking down our nose at people when we seek to try to defend the rights of the most innocent and the most defenseless among us the gospel declares that all these people whoever we are wherever we're coming from wherever we've been involved in whoever those that whatever you want to put in there all of us can find cleansing we can find forgiveness we can find restoration we can find redemption through jesus christ 
Now, I know some of you who say, oh, yes, well, I know that God says he promises to forgive me, but I just can't forgive myself. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've said that. May I say to you that a response like that is an admission that there is someone or something higher than God in your estimation, in your heart. To believe that one cannot forgive oneself is to believe that we need a greater Savior than Jesus Christ. And beware, my friends, that when pride elevates your heart, that you begin to assume that your sins are greater than what Christ can bear on the cross. My friend, you have far exceeded your sense of the greatness of your sins. You have just devalued and denigrated the gracious work of your Savior on the cross. Christ takes our shame, He takes our guilt, He takes our confusion, and He gives us, in place of those things, His robes of righteousness. He gives us those wonderful sense of glory that we share in. Which we say, I no longer approach God with my head down, I can approach God with my head up looking right at Him, thanking thanking Him for restoring me and forgiving me. Please hear me, the Gospel Promise us, us, cleansing, forgiveness, and newness of life. That same gospel, my friends, though, also leads, secondly, to speaking to our moral standards. Because the gospel says we have a new identity, and therefore, as a new identity, we are called to live in new ways. We don't live in the ways we used to live. It calls us to new sexual morality. It calls us to live chaste lives. And the scriptures then say, those of us who are made new creations in Christ, we live out the evidence of that by saying we honor God with the life he's given me, by saying I'm to abstain from sex outside of marriage, which is called fornication, and I abstain from sex with uh, an individual, if I'm married with someone who I'm not married to, sex with someone other than my spouse, which is called adultery. And the one flesh relationship that God has designed between a husband and a wife is the God-ordained context where sexual intimacy is designed to take place, in which procreation takes place, and that is the place in which God then brings forth life. That's his design. It's not designed to restrict you and ruin your life. It's designed to say that's the way God has designed it, to work for your benefit and for his glory. I won't have time to expand all these things. 1 Corinthians 6, we're told to flee immorality. Why? Because you've been bought with a price, therefore you're to live live in a way in which you run away from that stuff. Ephesians 5, chapter 2, we're told that uh, immorality, we're to walk in love. And we're there to have immorality named among us. Colossians 3, 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. It's just full of, all throughout Scripture, that's the logical implication of what it means to live a new life before God because of the gospel. And may I say to you that many of these people who, who are refusing to follow God's ways, and many people who I realize in moments of temptation they succumb, but many preborn babies are deemed a life worth sacrificing, quote-unquote, because they're viewed as an inconvenient consequence to immorality, by and large by many people. And so let me beyond, go beyond that, and again, I'm pleading with many of you young people, I'm, I'm pleading with you, to honor God and to seek to implement who you are in Christ with how you deal with members of the opposite sex, as well as those of us who are adults. 
Let me also urge you to think of how you translate your biblical worldview, thirdly, into our social interactions. You say, whoa, you, you lost me here. Social interactions? Yep, James chapter 3. Maybe you'll find your way there. It has to do with our communication, our speech. One of the ethical implications of human dignity compels us to consider the manner in which we interact with other people. We live in a day in which the standard of language has descended to such low levels. I mean, I know I'm getting to be 56 here. I am 56, almost 57. But I mean, I know that I've been around a while, but I'm telling you folks, the standards in terms of how people speak and what, how, what language they choose to use in their normal everyday course of, of conversation, it's full of vulgarity, obscenity. It has become, crude language has become the norm. And of course, our entertainment promotes the coarsening of this communication. It's the fruit again of a lack of reverence for God and a lack of reverence of respect for other people around us. James chapter 3, page 1436, verses 9 and 10. James 3, verses 9 and 10. With our tongue, or with our mouths, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth both come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. What's he saying? He's saying that our... Our, th- our words, our tweets, our blog postings reveal our hearts. And as they reveal our hearts, they, many of us will slip into the mindset of using words as weapons. And so we can use weapons when we're mad, when we're frustrated, when we're really wanting to take out our annoyances with people. We use our words to defend ourselves, to get revenge, to ruin other people who offend us. And at these moments, we fail to recognize that the people to whom we speak are made by God, and they are crowned with glory and honor by Him. So who are we to announce evil incomes, outcomes on people that God has imprinted with His own stamp of dignity? Any kind of words that, the, that, that defy God and somehow denigrate people who are His handiwork are offensive to God and not in keeping with our new identity as the followers of God through Jesus Christ. God help us with our tongues. God help us in how we speak to other people. And then very quickly, and I don't have time to fully expand on this either. I could, we could again be here all day talking about this, but please bear with me. This is very important. Another area of ethical implication of a biblical worldview is that we need to respond and be willing to respond to people who are desperate around us because every person is an image bearer of god and is crowned with glory and majesty we're called to extend mercy to those who are in dire need we're called upon to offer a compassionate loving response to those who find themselves in desperate situations a woman who considers terminating her pregnancy she needs to see not a person angry at her shouting at her yelling at her showing as if they are somehow uh, uh, disinterested in her, but in, in more concern for a bigger cause, is not in keeping with what would be appropriate response. We are to communicate in practical gestures the love of God that communicates compassion, communicates benevolence to a person in need. Single mothers 
continuously need a helping hand. We as a church need to be people who are aware of that on a regular basis. Children need to know that their dignity is rooted in God. It is not rooted in their appearance. It is not rooted in their performance. It is not rooted in their ability to achieve. And we as a people of God need to speak that to our children. Because our children are told, think much of yourself. They should be taught to what? I am who I am because God thinks much of me and has made me for His glory. And I would suggest to you also that children and adults with special needs are to be celebrated and valued as wonderful creatures of God. And I'll tell you one thing, we had some awesome rhythm going on today in our worship time. In our worship time. And let me just say also, people who have special needs, members of their family, they need additional levels of encouragement, support, people who offer a helping hand, a listening ear, a little extra time, let them go out and run an errand or whatever we can do. These are things that I think we as a church need to become uh, more and more sensitive to. Because look, what if you boil it all down? If you boil all it down as to what, what God is asking His people to set their hearts toward is what? He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor can be the person who is the most innocent, the most vulnerable form of life. That's our duty, that's our call before God. How do we do that? Well, there's a book that is available, uh, I have it in my library here, what do I do with it? Called 52 Things You Can Do to Be Pro-Life. And there's a list of things, all kinds of things from everything from standing at the pro-life rally today from 1 to 3 in front of Nassau County Medical Center in Hempstead. You can see the uh, Spanarellis, they're going to go and be there today. You can go outside and uh, make yourself known in a peaceful and appropriate ways of expressing your concern. You can help befriend those at the care center. You can support them financially. You can be an advocate in wherever you are, in school, and workplace. You can uh, arm yourself with greater understanding of what the issues are. You can become more involved with handicapped people, whatever. You can do tons of things. You're looking for ideas. I've got a list here for you. The question is, do you feel the sense of calling to operate within a biblical worldview and say, Lord, I want to be making a difference in a time in which life is becoming so cheap and so devalued. It is indeed alarming and shocking. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for, once again, the gospel that speaks to sinners like all of us. Lord, surely we are not any better than the secularist who picks and chooses one form of life and then destroys another. Lord, we thank you that we operate within a context that affirms that we all need the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that as we remind ourselves of the gospel that you would also arm us with hearts of compassion. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be a loving people, to be a kind and benevolent people, 
to be a people whose words are indicative or, or in, in, they bear witness to the fact that we are a people who respect the value of, of every person that we interact with. Father, we pray that you would also give us hands that love, give us generous uh, hands that will donate and support and share with people in need, give us serving, Lord, hands for those who find themselves facing almost impossible challenges. And we pray, O Father, that you would also help us to be the salt and light and influence in our society today that will give hope and will also bear witness to the fact that every single person is of value in your eyes. And toward that end, Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon us and upon this land. And we pray, Father, that we might see a turning of the tide and we see a restoring of more and more respect for all forms of life from the earliest days of conception to the last moments before one dies. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.